This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Today, this morning, and this evening, I want to share two messages with you which are very, very practical, but I believe that will be very challenging as well. Christianity, if nothing else, is both practical and challenging. And this morning, the title is this morning, The Believer and His Money. And the title tonight is The Believer and His Workplace. There's two places you're going to be tested. It'll be regarding your money and your workplace. And so... That's what I want to share with you. Now, when I said the believer and his money, I'm not being sexist. I should have said believers and their money. Uh, but you can understand, believers and believer and his money. That doesn't sound too exciting. Maybe just doesn't grab you when I announce that. But I was to tell you that about one-sixth of the Gospels, one-third of the parables, and one-fourth of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was dealing with finances, personal possessions, money, and how we relate to that and how we deal with that. And so it's a big subject. In fact, Jesus taught more about these things than he did about heaven and hell put together. Why? Because it's so much a part of our daily living. And if I was to tell you that there's over 700 references in the whole Bible to such things, then you would begin to see that really is important. And it's particularly important to us as believers. The Bible speaks of money matters because money matters. It matters to you, it matters to me, it matters to the church, it matters to missions, it matters to evangelism, it matters to God, it matters to every human being on the face of the earth, whether it's money or whether it's things, it all matters. Did you know that Jesus equates how we deal with our things, with our finances, with our personal possessions, he equates that with our spirituality. Did you know that? Or did you think that that was just a separate issue for me as a Christian? Actually, it's an integral part of our Christian life. Luke 16, verse 10 to 13 Jesus said, he who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is much. He who is unjust on that which is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, mammon is just money, it's just possessions, it's just things. If you have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust? Sorry, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's one or the other, but not both. It can serve us, but we can't serve it. Now, it is inevitable that God will bless us. His word clearly tells us that he wants to bless us 
and will bless us. And part of the blessing, obviously, will be some material possessions. But even with that, and depending often how much of that, then there's a caveat that he says in verse 15 of Luke 12. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Take heed, beware of covetousness. In other words, don't be envious or covetous of other people's possessions. There are other people who are going to be mightily blessed in that department. But don't be covetous. Don't be envious. If God has blessed them, then say amen to that. For he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And in Luke 12, 34, he says this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will always follow your treasure. Always. Whatever your treasure may be. So how do you know what your treasure is? Your treasure is what filled your thoughts with what you spend your energies on with what you take your time to do that's your treasure what's the most important thing in your thinking and in your life that you give your money to your energy to your time to your thoughts to that will be your treasure and your heart will follow your treasure so it's important that we know what our treasure is and as long as it's legitimate and it's wholesome and it's good and it's biblically correct and it's right, fine, your heart will follow that. So be careful what your heart's following because if it's not that, then you, it's going to lead you to trouble. But even if it is right and it is good and even it is God's blessing, then we need to be careful also in following that. We need to watch that it doesn't distract us in our spiritual life. That somehow or other that we get caught up in that. You see, God can bless you in such a way that if you're not careful, then you go after the blessing rather than the blesser. And so we need to be careful. And so the Bible gives us uh, such warnings. So throughout our Christian life, and more especially, I think, if you're involved in ministry, then how you handle finances and possessions, it will be a good indicator of where you are spiritually. Now, God knows that we are physical beings. We live in a material world. He's fully aware that we have to eat. We have to be clothed. We have to be housed. We have to travel. We have to look after our family, pay rent and rates and taxes and all of that there. And perhaps on top of that, maybe we have, have to have holidays. Uh, maybe we have a hobby that we pursue and we spend something on that. Uh, and so all of those are legitimate. There's nothing wrong with any of those things as long as we have them and they don't have us. As long as we possess our possessions rather than our possessions possess us. Jesus, Matthew 6, which you don't need to read, you know it well, part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he gives uh, much attention to things which the Gentiles seek that your Heavenly Father knows that we have need of. So what does he say? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us and not to worry or fret about these things. And so that very clearly 
tells us that stewardship, not ownership. Many Christians do not know the difference between stewardship and ownership. In other words, God owns everything we have and he's made us a steward of it. And he watches how we deal with it because we're only stewards. And one day we will leave all of it. So while we have it and while he gives it, then he looks to see how we steward it on his behalf. In a few moments, I'm going to talk about tithing and explain what that is in a few moments. And we may say, well, I, I give God 10% of my income and the 90% is mine. And to some degree, that's true. But in reality, all of it is his 100%. But he does ask us for 10% for his kingdom. But all of it belongs to him. Haggai 2 and 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Psalm 50 and 10, for every beast of the field is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. So God owns everything. There are several parables taught by Jesus on stewardship. The parable of the talents, Matthew 25. The parable of the minas, Luke 19. The parable of the rich young ruler, Luke 18. The parable of the unjust steward, Luke 16. And the parable of the foolish farmer in Luke 12. Let's just have a little gander at Luke chapter 12, for just for a second or two. Luke chapter 12. Verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain man, certain rich man, yielded it plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Did you notice there were six eyes and four mys? It's all mine. I worked for it. I earned it. I made the crops to grow. In fact, he's saying, it's all mine. I can do what I want with it. And God says, no, actually, it's mine. It's mine. And you haven't been a very good steward of it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's trying to teach here. And so it's an important part of our whole Christian experience that we do this. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. You don't need to turn to these. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs 11, 24 and 26. There's he who scatters, yet increases more. There's one who withholds more than is right, but it lends to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich. He who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be upon the head of him who sells it. 
Old John Bunyan said, there once was a man, they called him mad, the more he gave, the more he had. And so money, or the lack of it, or the abundance of it, or the desire for it, or the pleasure of it, or the need of it, or the good of it, or the snare of it, the sharing of it, all of that is an indispensable part of our Christian lives. And it's hardly surprising then that Scripture has so much to say about it. Let me talk to you about tithing. Now, for quite a number of you in here over the years that I know personally, uh, tithing has just been a way of life for you. Uh, I know that my wife and I, from the very first day that we became believers, uh, because we had known about it, that's exactly what we did. And we have never ceased doing that, and God willing, never will. And I know that there's many of you who are in the same position as that. There's others, perhaps, and you haven't actually taken that step of faith to do that. There's others among you, perhaps, and maybe you're new believers, and you don't even know what it is. You haven't heard about it. You had no teaching on it. So I want to share a little bit about it. Now, this is not something that we, we continually hammer on about. I mention it during the offering. We'll give her tithes and offerings. But I think the last time I taught on any depth on it was probably about six years ago. So it's not a, a, a big thing that we constantly hammer you over the head with. And forgive me if I haven't shared it enough because I should have because it's a, it's a biblical principle. And it's a blessing. It's an actual blessing to us if we understand it. The first time tithing is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis 14, 18. And it's in relation to Abraham and how that Abraham uh, met this mysterious, enigmatic king-priest called Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace, Salem's peace. And how that he had come back uh, from a mini war. There was four kings who had attacked the king of Sodom, where Lot, his relative, lived, uh, and, and took Lot and his family and many people prisoners away with them and, and, and stripped the place and took their goods and all the rest of it. But Abraham, hearing about Lot being taken prisoner, he gathers up over 300 of his best men and he follows those kings and he beats them and takes back all the goods and Lot and his family and brings them back to the king of Sodom. And it's there he meets, coming back, he meets this king priest, Melchizedek. And it's there he gives him a tithe of all the goods that he brought back. It says in Genesis 14, 18, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered all your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe or a tenth of all that he had. Now this mysterious Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14, 18 and Psalm 110 and verse 4. And if I can just read, this is a messianic psalm. And so this is a prophetic psalm about Jesus that was to come. And it says... In verse 4 of Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn, sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
And then it's mentioned again in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, notice that he gave him a tithe or a tenth of all that he had possessed, his first fruits of all of that goods that he had brought back. Now, sometimes Christians now say, well, that was the Old Testament. That was under the law. But we're under grace in the New Testament, so we just can forget about that. But actually, it was long before the law. It was 430 years before the law was ever given, before there ever was another priesthood, an Aaronic priesthood. And so it's pre-law by centuries. Yes, it is Old Testament, but it's not just under the law. It did come under the law. In fact, the law commanded it. But long before the law was ever given, there was tithing that was going on, particularly to this king priest, Melchizedek. And so I wonder where he got the idea to give a tithe, a tenth, his first fruits of what he possessed. Could it be he thought back of Abel? He gave the firstlings of his flock. Could it be? We don't know exactly, but what we do know is he was so impressed and he was so blessed with this king priest Melchizedek that he decided, I'll give you a tenth of all that I have brought back. I'll give you my first fruits here of all that I have brought back. Now, later on in Genesis 28, you remember Jacob, we talked about him last week, I believe it was. You remember Jacob and the situation with him and Esau, his brother, and how that he, he got the birthright from his brother, and his brother was mad at him, was wanted to kill him, and he had to go then to live with his uncle Laban, his grandfather Bethuel. And, and on the route there, before he got there, he put his head down on a rock to sleep, and he got a great vision of a, of a ladder, and angels ascending and descending upon it. Uh, and when he woke up, in fact, God told him in that vision, he says, even where you lie, I'll give this to you and your descendants forever. Uh, and I'll make it from you a great nation, just like Abraham had been told. And so this has come through the lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We spoke about that last week. And so when he woke up, he says, this is none other than the house of God. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. And then he made a vow. You can read it at the end of chapter 28 of Genesis. He made a vow. He says, God, if you bless me, when I go here, when I come back, if you bless me, I will give you a tenth of all that I possess. I wonder where he got that idea. Maybe from Abraham. And so Abraham paid tithes to this priest king Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ. Now, it tells us in Hebrews that he had no genealogy. It says he had no father, no mother, but that just simply means there's no recorded genealogy. Of course he had a father, of course he had a mother. He wasn't an angel, but he had no genealogy recorded. Why? Because he was going to be a type of Christ. He said, well, Christ's genealogy is recorded. Yes, but notice here in, in Psalm 110, a priest forever under the, like a type of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Jesus, yes, had a genealogy. He lived, he died, that's recorded. But he came from eternity past. He's in eternity future. 
and his priesthood goes on forever. He sits at the right hand of God as our great high priest. Now, there's a couple of reasons why the writer to Hebrews brings up this whole thing about Melchizedek. I want to share that for a few moments with you before we move on because he talks about tithing in it. And so the Hebrew Christians had come under tremendous pressure. They were being persecuted. And those of them who were, for instance, who were in trades, there was trade guilds, uh, they were being put out of the trade guilds. And so it was very difficult to do any type of business or even work on a job. They're just being persecuted. And so things were really tough for them. Now remember, they were Hebrew Christians. They had come out of Judaism. And the priesthood under Judaism, God had finished with it. Even though it was perpetuating, it was still going on, but God had finished with it. Now there was a great high priest. There was a new testament. There was a new dimension. And so part of their problem was they were being persecuted and they would look back to Judaism. In fact, some of them had gone back some of them had stopped coming to church altogether. Forsake not the assembling yourselves together as the manner of some is, the writer of the Hebrews says. And so some of them were going back. They were looking back to Judaism. Judaism that had their priests, that had their vestments, that had their temple, that had their form that they didn't have to think about. All they had to do was just do what they're told under the priesthood and just go through all the rigmarole, as we would say. But whenever they became believers, now they didn't have that. Now they have to walk by faith and not by sight. And their great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of the Father, so he's not here on earth. They can't see him. They can't touch him. And so suddenly, the, the material thing, the temple, the priesthood, the vestments, the religion... That seems safe and secure in comparison to this walking by faith business being persecuted for it. And so the writer to the Hebrews, whether that's Paul, we don't know, or whoever, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to get into their minds, look, this priesthood, this whole Old Testament priesthood, it's gone. And in fact, he takes them back before the Aaronic priesthood. And he takes them all the way back to Melchizedek. And he says, look, there was a priesthood back before this priesthood. And it was so good. And Abraham, Father Abraham was so impressed by it that he even started to give tithes to this priesthood. Now he says, there's now a new priest, our great high priest, which is far, far superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And just as Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ which is to come, now we have a new priest, a great high priest, who's greater than even Melchizedek and greater than the Aaronic priesthood. Now, follow him. Follow him. Bless him. Follow him. Worship him. And so, in Hebrews chapter 7, let's just read that then. Part of that, Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. You know, of course, that under the, the law uh, that you couldn't be a king and a priest. 
And there was kings who tried to intrude into the priesthood, and God dealt very severely with them for that. But here, before the law, before there was the Aaronic priesthood, there was this king-priest. And now after the Aaronic priesthood, there's now a king-priest. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. Then he says, He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Jesus now ministers in the power of an endless life. He ministers forever. And he takes him back to Melchizedek. We have no record of his death. So it's almost as if he's living on, so to speak. But he's a type of Christ who is living on in reality and sits at the right hand of God. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives, even Levi who receives tithes, Paid, paid, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In other words, the writer here is saying, listen, you lot, you Levites, you priesthood, he's a natural fact, you were in the loins of Abraham when he gave those tithes. So in a sense, you were tithing to, you were tithing to Melchizedek through Abraham, so to speak, he's saying. He's just got an illustration. Therefore, a perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law. What further need was there of another priest who should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, which no man has officiated at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you're a priest forever, according to the law of Melchizedek. Now notice another little thing there before we move on. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, which was not the Levitical priesthood tribe so another reason he's saying that Jesus is very different than the Aaronic priesthood because his priesthood didn't come from Aaron, it didn't come from the Levites, in fact he came from Judah which normally he wouldn't be any kind of a priest but he is in fact he's the great high priest so all the while this writer of the Hebrews is trying to tell them look the priesthood is over there's a new testament. There's a new covenant. There's a new high priest. He's the one we follow. He's the one we bless. He's the one we worship. So have you got that? I'm not sure that you have. All right, that's a lot to swallow one bite, isn't it? 
but you can read it in different translations, maybe make it a little bit easier for you. But isn't it interesting that during all of that there, that the writer is talking about the giving of the tithe. And he also said that the tithe, according to Leviticus, and it's according to Leviticus 27, that the tithe was for the priesthood, the upkeep, the maintenance of the priesthood and the temple and the officiating. And so Paul calls it, or Malachi calls it the storehouse. And we'll look at Malachi in a moment, the storehouse. And Paul reiterates this New Testament this principle in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word of God and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, I threw that into the mix this morning just to let you know there's people who would argue and say, well, there should be no remuneration for those who preach the gospel or for pastors or leaders. There is, and it's right there in Scripture. And by and large, and to one degree or another, that's what churches do, and it's scriptural, and it's biblical, and it's right. Within reason, of course. Within reason, it has to be said. Now, it may be argued that Tithing is an Old Testament word. And it is. We just read from the Old Testament. But as R.T. Kendall says, that as Christians, we like to use a lot of Old Testament words like righteousness and redemption and the blood and faith and sin and so forth. And so we use a lot of Old Testament words and descriptions. But tithing was before the law and during the law. And I believe since the law. And that's what we're coming to. Now Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, what had they left undone? They left undone justice, mercy, and faith, the weightier parts of the law. In other words, they were big on tithing, but short on mercy and faith and justice. Now, he said, you shouldn't have left that undone. But, but, he says, without leaving the others undone. So if he had been getting at them just simply because they were tithing, he'd have said, forget that tithing business, just go on to the mercy and justice and faith. But he didn't. He says, that's what you've left undone. So he says, do that, but don't leave the others undone. You can continue with that. Malachi chapter 3 is the tither's charter. And it's the very last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Anybody that ties is very familiar. With Malachi chapter 3. In fact, it's not the last chapter, it's the penultimate chapter, one before. 
So Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. The only time God encourages us to prove him, to try him. The only time. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the fields, says the Lord of hosts. Now we know that was specifically given to Israel. But the principle holds good. The principle holds good. And the principle is that we don't rob God. That we give to God's kingdom. And we make sure that we do it well. And with a heart and a half. And if we do, God promises to bless us. Test me. Prove me. See that this will work. <coughs> See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. In this statement, we see Paul here gives us very good reason why we should give of our money and our material possessions. He writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, these were the Christians back at Jerusalem who were struggling, who were going through again difficult times, and they really, really needed material help. So now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, that each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, there be no collections when I come. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, your, your brethren in Jerusalem, your Jewish brethren are really struggling. You're Gentile Christians, the current church was Gentile Christians. Now here's a great opportunity to bless them, to bless them. And how I want you to do it is that now, until we come for this, so there's no big hoo-ha when I come, make sure that every week you lay past something for these brethren. Apart from what they would do generally, lay past something for your brethren in Jerusalem. Storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 is the two great chapters on giving in the New Testament. And it's relating to what he's just said here. And so we acknowledge God's provision and his providence in our lives. Verse 2, as God has prospered us. So we acknowledge his provision and his providence in our life. He is our source. There may be other supply lines. Your job, your business, your career, the government, whoever at the time. It may be a supply line to you. But he is the source because that supply line could dry up. You could be out of a job tomorrow. And some of you over the years have come in here and told me, guess what, Pastor? I've just been laid off. 
And that's your, that's your supply line cut off right there, but not your source. God's your source. So he finds another way, gets another supply line to you in order to bless you, in order to help you. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we acknowledge God's provision and providence in our lives. Secondly, we acknowledge his lordship over us. When we give, we're acknowledging his lordship over us. So not only in our worship, but in our work. That's why Christianity is such a practical thing. You've got to live it out. And that's why tonight I want to talk about the, the believer in his workplace, because you've got to live it out. It's not just going to happen between these four walls only. It's got to be out there. Now, it may come as a shock to you. The believers, we need to be reminded that the Lord still stands over against the treasury when he comes to church. Do you remember Jesus went into the temple and he stood over at the treasury? Well, they had these, they reckon there were six of them, these... Uh, funnel-shaped receptacles where people came and put their offerings in. And Jesus went over and he stood right at them watching what people were putting in. Can you imagine if I just stepped down this morning, went over to the Nichols here at offering time and as they were putting their offering in, I'm standing looking. Huh? They'd tell me, clear off. None of your business. <coughs> and it's not really my business. I wouldn't do that, of course, naturally. But Jesus does it. He knows what we give. And he's interested in what we give. Because very often it's a barometer of where we are spiritually. Sometimes the hardest thing for God to open up is our wallets and our purses. And if he can break through and open them up, let me tell you, it breaks through and opens a lot of things up in our lives. Now, God doesn't need our money per se. I mean, what's he going to do with it? Streets are paved with gold in heaven. God doesn't need our money per se. Certainly, he doesn't need it in heaven. But he needs it here on earth, where his kingdom now is working through us. And God loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? A cheerful giver. So we acknowledge his lordship over us. Thirdly, we acknowledge our stewardship under him. We've got to be good stewards of all that we possess. And verse 2, it says, upon the first day of the week. So giving is both constant and systematic. Not random or haphazard or when you feel like it or you're in the notion. Constant and systematic. You wouldn't dream of paying your mortgage randomly or your car repayments or your taxes. It has to be constant and systematic. So why shouldn't the kingdom of God get the same attention? In fact, it should get better attention. Upon the first day of the week, now I know that Many of these would be paid monthly, and that, but it's the same principle, whether it's weekly or monthly. It's the same principle. I know that some of you 
work through the bank here, or bank account rather than in the offering, but it's the same principle, as long as it's systematic and it's constant. Let every one of you, so giving is to be both personal and responsible. Every one of you. Now let me add a, a caveat to that. Because it could be that your partner is unsaved. And maybe you are not in a position to take his money or her money and tie that of it. Because they may be in direct disagreement with that. And it may be not your position to do that. But whatever you would get out of that, whatever allowance, if that's the way that it works, I don't know how it works in your household, but if, if you get an allowance, then you can tie that to that until such times as your partner understands and is willing to. I just add that for caveat. I'm not saying that from Scripture, I'm just saying, like Paul says, this is me, not the Lord, when he injected some of his own, what he thought, thought was a good thing to do. On the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. So giving is to be both thoughtful and purposeful. Thoughtful, purposeful. Now those of us who have been doing this for a long, long time, you get blasé about it. It's a holy habit. And it's a good holy habit to have, by the way. I would encourage you all to take up this holy habit. But we do it. We don't even think about it. We just do it. But we should stop and think once in a while. Because I can tell you that your money's goes all over the world to the Philippines to Africa to India to China to Ukraine all over the world reaching people that we will never ever meet until we get to the glory just a week ago or 10 days ago we sent to our friends in the Ukraine as we do in January beginning of January every year for years we sent them, I think this year it was 6,000 euros. And what that's for is for what they call a mobile team. They have a small team of fellas and girls who works full time going to the prisons, going to the hospitals, going on the streets, going to the east where the war is, delivering food and clothing to the people in need. I was talking to the pastor just before Christmas, our pastor Alexander. And he said to me, Pastor, he says, this year, that was 2017, we lost 50 of our people who had to go either abroad or go to the big cities to get a job. He says, because this area, he says, the economy is so bad, he says, they had to go to get work. And some of those who were here years ago, that we remember the 20 that came, a lot of those are gone today. They're in America, they're in Germany, they're in Holland, they're all over. Some has gone to Russia, some has gone to the big cities. Why? because they had to get work. They had to follow work. And so we give to help those churches and those missions. And in and, and Africa, the mercy ships, we, we give to, to Rachel, we make sure, and, and helping hands and so forth. So when you give, that's where a lot of it goes to in order to be a blessing to the kingdom of God. And only eternity will show the fruit of all of that. As God has prospered him. So giving is to be both proportional and pleasurable.
because God loves a cheerful giver, proportional. Now, the word tithe has not been mentioned here. Paul didn't use that word. Maybe because he's speaking to a Gentile church. Jews would have been very familiar with it. But he's speaking to the Gentile church. But he uses the term proportional. Proportional. Which is just as good because a tithe is proportional. It's a tenth. And it's a good proportion. It's a good baseline to use. And if Abraham thought it was good to use it before the law, to Melchizedek, is it not a good proportion to use to our great high priest to give to his kingdom? I think so. But it's proportional. And the best about a tithe, because it's proportional, the best about that is everybody's in the same boat. Whether you have much, whether you have little, it's a tenth. Fourthly, we're winding up here. We're giving thanks to God for his blessings. It's a tangible expression of our thanks to God. It's just an expression. We could never, ever repay God for what he's done for us, and all the money in the world wouldn't do it. But it's an expression of our thankfulness. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of expressing our thanks to God for all that he's done for us and his provision in our lives. And fifthly, we give because it's a principal part of God's reward system. A principal part of God's reward system. Luke 6.38, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And so, it's a principal part of God's reward system. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And in Acts 20, 35, Luke, the author, records the words of Paul he says about Jesus, something Jesus said, we don't know where he said it, when he said it, to whom he said it, but Paul quotes it. Acts 20, 35, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. <coughs> Do you believe that? Many Christians have not owned that scripture. They struggle with that. It's lovely to receive, isn't it? We all love to receive, and there's nothing wrong with loving to receive, and sometimes you have to learn to receive. It's lovely. Wonderful. But Jesus said it's more blessed even to give than to receive. When you give, there is a tremendous blessing with it. In fact, when you give to somebody, no matter how blessed they feel, you should be more blessed giving it than they are getting it. And when you get into the rhythm of doing this, then you do feel blessed because you've done that. That's a wonderful thing. And so it comes back to you in many, many ways. Don't expect it just to come back through the person you give it to or the thing you give it to, God finds ways to reward us as long as we are giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to close here just in a second. 
which I mentioned a few moments ago, is one of the two great chapters in giving. Paul again talking about the collection for the church at Jerusalem. Verse 8, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And the reason why Paul's writing here is because the Corinthians had promised to do this a year before, and they didn't do it. So Paul's giving them a G up, and he's boasting about other ones that is doing it in order to give them a <coughs> spiritual kick up the backside, can I say? So he says, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. So he urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also, note this, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Notice what Paul calls giving a grace. It's a gracious thing to do. It's full of grace. Then he goes on, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it. And as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. If there be a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You see, sometimes you could be in a position where you have a willing mind, where you want to do it, but you just haven't got the wherewithal to do it. There's so much more you'd love to do, but you just haven't got it. But your mind's willing. Your heart wants to do it. That's what he's saying. And then, to cut this short, verse 6 of chapter 9, but I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not because somebody is twisting your arm up your back or beating you over the head. And you know, those of you who come in here for years, we do not do that here. In fact, sometimes I even forget about the offering and the man has to shake the basket to remind me. And that's a mistake. Never should forget about the offering because that's your chance to be blessed as well as the kingdom. <coughs> and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever 
Now, right at the very end of the chapter, to put everything into perspective, as Paul always liked to do, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He spent two whole chapters speaking about one offering. And at the end of it, important as it was, and as much as he wanted them to do it, at the end of it, he says, listen, it's just a small thing in comparison to his indescribable gift to us. It's just nothing. And that's true, isn't it? That's true. I want to close here. I'm just going to read you something. I want to show you something. In case you can't see it, let me tell you what it is. It's a tube of Colgate toothpaste and a bar of palm olive soap. And some of you may have washed your face with that soap this morning and brushed your teeth with toothpaste. Say, what in the world has that got to do with a slice of a loaf of bread? Well, let me tell you. The Colgate Palm Olive Company is one of the oldest in America. Going back nearly 200 years, it was started by a young man named William Colgate. He left home at 16 years of age to seek his fortune, and everything that he owed in this world was tied in a bundle that he carried in his hand. But as he walked along his way to the city, he met an old neighbor, the captain of a canal boat, and the words the old man spoke to him on that day stayed with him his entire life. Well, William, where are you going? asked the canal boat captain. I don't know. Father is too poor to keep me at home any longer and says I must make a living for myself now. And William went on to say that he had no skills, that he didn't know how to do anything except make soap and candles. Well, said the old man, let me pray for you and give you a little advice. Then in the pathway, the two of them, a teenager and an old man, knelt down and the man prayed earnestly for William. Then rising up, the boat captain said this, someone will soon be, be the leading soap maker in New York. It may just be as well as you as anyone. And I hope that it may be. Be a good man. Give your heart to Christ and give the Lord all that belongs to him of every dollar you earn. Make an honest soap and give a full pound and I'm certain you will yet be a prosperous and rich young man. When William arrived in New York, he had trouble finding a job, but he followed the old man's advice. He dedicated himself to Christ, joined a church, began worshiping there. The first thing he did with the first dollar he earned was to give 10% of it to the Lord's work. And from that point on, he considered 10 cents of every dollar as sacred to the Lord. In fact, he soon began giving 20% of his income to the Lord. Then he raised it to 30%, and then to 40%, and then to 50%. And late in life, he had become so successful that he devoted the whole of his yearly income, 100% of it, to the Lord. And even today, this very morning, nearly 200 years later, some of you brushed your teeth or washed your faces with products from that young man's factory. Huh. It's a good thing to give to God, isn't it? And if we're sincere and we take a step of faith to do it, and some of these may have to sit down 
and talk to the Lord and take a step of faith. And trust me when I say it could be the best step you've ever taken since the day you get saved. It can make a big change in your life, spiritually and materially. And willing, God willing tonight, I'm going to talk about the, the believer in his workplace. Because that is so important about how we conduct our lives as believers in the workplace. And that goes for employees and employers. Because we're all in the same boat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're no man's debtor. We thank you the scriptures are full of promises, of blessing, and obedience to your word. So we give you thanks. We thank you for the challenge. Help us, Lord, to rise to the challenge and to prove you, as Malachi said. And so we thank you for this. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people in this house. Thank you for what has been accomplished to the ends of the earth because of their faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.